Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving full of family, feasting, and rest. I sure did. Welcome back to this week's episode. We got a few, we got a sprint to the end of the year with some excellent episodes. This week, we're doing something a little bit different. We have got a panel discussion to talk about the enthralling HBO series Succession, which is all about wealth, family dynasties, ambition, and greed. And my panelists are all stars. I've got Meredith Blake from the Los Angeles Times, Dave Linick from wealthmanagement.com, and James Andrew Miller, author of the new book, Tinderbox, HBO's Relentless Pursuit of New Frontiers. We will get to the panel in just a second. First, I want to tell you that today's show is brought to you by Masterworks, the $1 billion fintech platform that lets you invest in art by Picasso, Warhol, and Banksy. Cut the line to invest in blue chip art today by going to masterworks.io slash crazy money. That's masterworks.io slash crazy money. Link is in the show notes. I also want to let you know that I've got some upcoming shows. I'll be in Chattanooga this weekend. December, I have a variety of shows in Atlanta. In January, I have shows in Pennsylvania, among other places. And I'm excited to announce that I will be headlining the Venice West as the first comedian to headline the Venice West, which is a brand new music venue on the west side of Los Angeles there in Venice, California. So February 3rd in Los Angeles, tell all your friends and you can see all my show dates at paulollinger.com. So as I said, we've got an all-star panel to discuss the HBO show Succession. If you've watched the show, I know you're going to dig hearing what they have to say, some insights behind the scenes kind of stuff, some analysis from wealth management about the intricacies of family businesses. So I know you'll want to listen to it. And if you haven't watched the show, here's a great way to decide if this could be a show for you. Trust me, it's worth your time. Please note that the conversation today, like the show, includes adult themes, so it may not be a great episode for your kids, unless they're cool. It also includes a few spoilers, so consider yourself notified if you haven't watched all the way through season two. Here's what Succession is all about, as summarized by James A. Let's call him Jim Miller in his new book, Tenderbox, HBO's Relentless Pursuit of New Frontiers. Succession revolves around the Roy family, a thinly veiled amalgam of the Murdochs and, well, the Murdochs an aging patriarch named Logan, portrayed in juicily Lear-like fashion by Scottish actor Brian Cox, plays his over-eager children off each other as they jockey to take over his evil media empire, Waystar Royco. We're going to go into what each of the characters is all about in periodic updates throughout this conversation, so I will leave it at that, but suffice to say that he's got a daughter, the beautiful Shiv, played by Sarah Snook, Roman Roy, played by Kieran Culkin, who is a damaged young man, and Kendall Roy, who is the scheming oldest son who's trying to take over the company. And he's got sort of this crazy certified older brother, Connor, who's played by the guy who uh, you know from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I find this relevant because Succession covers so much about extreme wealth, and it addresses the question implicitly, are people with tons and tons of money any or happier than you and I or the average person out there? Is it possible for a billionaire to be a great parent? And would you actually be happier if you flew on private jets and helicopters and had hundreds of millions of dollars with which to plan your vacations? Our panelists today, as I mentioned, are Meredith Blake, who is the entertainment reporter for the Los Angeles Times, where she writes about TV and other things. Dave Lenick is a senior editor at wealthmanagement.com, where he writes about wills, estates, trusts, and other matters of family money. He is also the host of the Celebrity Estates podcast. 
formerly known as the Dead Celebrities Podcast. So he's got a great wicked sense of humor and he's informed. And lastly, but definitely not leastly, James Andrew Miller. He's the author of the new book, Tinderbox, HBO's Ruthless Pursuit of New Frontiers. His previous works include Those Guys Are Having All the Fun, which is a book about ESPN, Powerhouse, which is a book about Creative Artists Agency, a.k.a. CAA, and Live from New York, which, in my opinion, is the definitive book about the history of Saturday Night Live. If you have not read Live from New York and you are a big fan of SNL, you owe it to yourself to get that book. Ladies and gentlemen, these are my friends, Meredith Blake, Dave Linick, and Jim Miller. Dave Lenick, James Andrew Miller, and Meredith Blake, welcome to Crazy Money. It's our pleasure. Thanks for having us. We're here to discuss the HBO series Succession, the plot of which I've explained in the introduction. And we know it's a play off of the Murdoch family, owners of Fox News and other media properties. I want to start with Meredith. Meredith, do you think Logan Roy loves his children? No, (laughs) I don't think that Logan is a functional human being. And I think that he has moments of fleeting fondness for his children, particularly when they do his bidding and when they help him expand his empire and expand his wealth. But I do not think he loves his children in a way that anyone here or any kind of psychological professional would recognize as love. (laughs) I don't think he is really capable of that. It's funny you say that because I had written that question and I was doing some research reading some of your articles about Succession. And in one of them, Brian Cox, who plays Logan Roy, says he asked the producers of the show, does Logan Roy love his children? And the producers said that he did. Armstrong, after he read the pilot script that Jesse wrote, and he said, I just have one question for you. Do I love my kids? And Jesse said, yes. (laughs) Which makes the whole thing even more of a fog of war. But I also think it's possible he thinks that he loves them without actually loving them (laughs) or getting into the weeds. I think you especially see he's clearly fond of Shiv, right, his daughter. But I think he's fond of her the most because she's the most capable and also in some ways the most cunning of his kids. And so I don't know that you can untangle those things with Logan. Am I wrong? I think it's fun that you bring up the idea of the capability of the kids, because I think that's sort of the proof that he maybe does love them. The fact that there is even a show here. Because all of the kids, even Shiv, the most capable of them, are all kind of idiots who like pretend like they're playing 4D chess when they're really playing checkers. And they kind of just, even Logan himself kind of only overcomes his kids' machinations half the time through like dumb luck or like drug relapse. You know what I mean? So like these kids are not good at this job. They would all be terrible. And he knows that. And yet he still entertains this weird fantasy of having a child take over for him. So in some odd way, you know, that could maybe be proof of his love that he still entertains this idea that any of these morons could step in and do his job. And it's very easy to argue about this, but uh, I'm not sure at all that Shiv is the most capable. In fact, she's kind of a train wreck, as we saw last week. She finally gets inside the company and she has <laughs> no guardrails whatsoever. She has no instincts for how to deal with people, including her husband, for that matter. And her instincts are usually proven wrong. You know, in season one, we saw with the political campaign, she had a pretty low batting average as well. I think there's something, I think there's a malfunction at work with all of them to say that one is, you know, operating at a higher plane than the other. I don't know. Let's go to the notion that Dave just brought up that Logan is obsessed with the idea of one of his kids taking over. Why is he obsessed with that? And on the other side of the coin, why are the kids obsessed about being the one, the one that dad chooses? So, yeah, this is a a real complex thing, actually, that relates for all family business owners, I think. You don't have to be like some crazy 
unbelievably wealthy uh, media magnet. This could just be like a guy who owns a tire shop that he built. I think a lot of family business owners like this, they start the business with the idea that this is for my family. And at some point that shifts a little bit and that the business itself can often become more important than the family, but still in their head and in their hearts, maybe they still maintain this fantasy of, I have built this for my kids to pass on to my kids, even though at some point they stop believing that the business can really function without them. And so that's sort of a fallacy that a lot of sort of business owners fall into eventually is that they start with this best intention. The whole reason I did this was for my family. So obviously I have to pass it on to my family, but then when faced with the reality of giving up control and the reality maybe of what your kids are actually capable of handling, this sort of stuff can kind of, you know, there can be some shock with the uh, reality and then the fantasy. Meredith, what do you think? I think it also has to do with, again, I don't think it's his love for his children, but I think it's this idea of securing his line of succession, right? It's called succession, right? This is a show about a dynasty, about a media dynasty, and he wants to secure it and keep it within the family, not necessarily because he loves his kids, but because he wants to keep some part of himself alive in the world after he's gone. Because the whole thing that's looming over this show is the fact that he almost died and that he's maybe got a few years left in him. And he's trying to sort of get all of his ducks in a row before he leaves his mortal coil behind. And I think for him, it's really important on a psychological level to have one of his children running the company, even if they're not as capable as outsiders we see on a show like Jerry, for instance, who does seem genuinely to have it all together as much as one can in this world. But she's, she's sort of the ceremonial figurehead right now while he figures out who's really going to take over the company. Logan Roy is the family patriarch. He is based on Rupert Murdoch. He's played by Brian Cox. He's the billionaire founder of a media and theme park empire. His favorite term is fuck off, which has a wide variety of meanings, anywhere from see you later to I will not buy your company to, well, uh, just fuck off. If Logan wasn't a billionaire, he would be the regional manager of a chain of Firestone complete auto care stores in the Midwest. And he'd spend his nights drinking Kugels and watching hockey in the neighborhood bar. He would still have a bad relationship with his family and his favorite phrase would also still be fuck off. Jim, if you were an HR consultant to Logan Roy, how would you assess each candidate's <laughs> capabilities and resumes as related to the ability to take over the family business? The problem is that they're all damaged and fundamentally flawed in, in key ways that relate to the business. I agree with Meredith that, you know, he ultimately does want to keep it within the family. And I think it's why, and it's a great dramatic through line for Jesse and the writer's room, which is that he keeps hoping that they're going to surprise him. You know, with each of them, he tees them up. He gives them an opportunity. He lets them do a meeting. He lets them go to do something. And of course, they let him down or... Let's put it this way. There's no pleasing him because he doesn't think that they can do it as well as him. So he's still hoping that they're going to rise to it. The problem is that not only do they really not have any moral compass and great intellectual aptitude for these things, but they're so busy hating each other or being competitive with each other that that becomes like a toxic kind of broth for them to play around with as well. There should be no argument. There's plenty of family dynasties and family businesses where they don't have problems and people can figure out joint leadership or division of labor or whatever. But these people are just too happy going to war with each other. At one point, Logan looks at Ken and says, you're not a killer. You have to be a killer. So it's not just a question of smarts. It's a question of deal-making acumen and the ability to be cold about emotional things. Does one of the kids have that killer instinct or does one of the 
peripheral executives at Waystar Royco have that? Meredith, what do you think? You know, it's a tough one because they all have their vulnerabilities. And I'm sitting here thinking that maybe Roman has the killer instinct more than any of the other kids. But even he's kind of a big softy when it comes to his dad. Like he sort of, that's his big vulnerability and his mom. And that's why he's got a lot of mommy issues as the show has explored. To, to <laughs> yes, he very does. Very hilarious effect. Indeed. I think maybe Roman does. I think we obviously know that Kendall doesn't have the killer instinct as much as he's really trying to this season. I think the end of season two ended with that terrific look on Brian Cox's face that some people interpret as a smile. Was he sort of weirdly thrilled to see Kendall engaging in this open warfare with him? Maybe he was. I think we saw Shiv at the end of season two disappoint him by basically choosing Tom over over the family and over Logan. So I think that she doesn't necessarily totally have the killer instinct. I think if anyone has it, it's Roman. But again, even he has these strange kind of vulnerabilities. And Connor is sort of this weirdo who's sort of disconnected from the whole conversation and doesn't seem to sort of care one way or the other too much. He's more interested in Napoleon or whatever. <laughs> well, I mean, just to spike things up, I, I, I'll disagree because look, what Jeremy Strong's character does at the end of season two is exactly having a killer instinct. That's why people thought that he smiled. That's why people thought maybe this is a Machiavellian ploy that the two of them were working on together. I mean, the fact that in the first couple episodes of this season, he doesn't execute it well and he gets caught with his, with his pants down a couple of times is problematic, but that's wholly consistent with the fact that he's not a great strategist and he's not a brilliant businessman. He gets confused all the time. But he certainly, for him to go and make that press conference and turn on his father like that, I mean, I think that's the personification of it. And one last thing, I don't think Shiv decided to go with Tom. I don't think Shiv has ever followed Tom in anything. He is her bitch, and uh, she he follows her. The idea that she's going to sign, I mean, she'll send him to prison. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, she tells him on his wedding night, listen, don't forget, you know, I'm going to be cheating on you for the for the next 50 years. I mean, she has absolutely no fear of this guy, and she's definitely going to be the alpha male in that marriage. Sure. But he specifically said, don't make me the, the blood sacrifice. And she went to Logan and asked him not to do it. It was one moment where I think she sided with Tom that was really critical in the storyline. Shiv Roy. The Shiv is short for Siobhan, which is spelled S-I-O-B-H-A-N. How you get Shiv out of that, I don't know. She's played by the gorgeous Sarah Snook, and she is Logan's only daughter, a sultry redhead who pretends she wants nothing to do with the family business, but when she gets a taste of it, has no ability to maintain that poker face and basically becomes a cat meowing by the food. If Shiv had not been born a Roy, she'd be the recently divorced VP media director at Digitas New York, who just finished paying off her student loans from Quinnipiac. That's right, Quinnipiac. I don't know why I chose it. Maybe I've got a thing for universities that do research into presidential elections. I don't know. Which of these characters actually has character? Because they all seem pretty vacuous and, as Meredith described them, rapacious in a recent article, who's got real character or who's developing character as the show moves on? But I think Kendall is the one who sort of, at least just in by virtue of doing bad things and then actively like showing human remorse and emotions for them instead of just being a total sociopath about it, like some of the other kids kind of do. So I would just say that Kendall and this sort of crowd of terrible people 
is the one who at least sort of knows he's a terrible person and feels bad about it. He knows he killed that waiter. <laughs> Spoiler yeah, yeah. alert. <laughs> I think the deer killed the waiter. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. I also think I agree with that. I oddly think Roman has evolved into like, you know, there was that moment last season where he was like, no, you can't sacrifice Jerry. And he was right. And like, again, as I've said, there's some complicated stuff going on with Jerry and Roman, but he was right. And there was this kind of fleeting moment of valor for Roman. I mean, it's very small. You're judging um, who's a good person on this show by like really minute moments of, of decency. <laughs> very fleeting. I, uh, I wish they would have picked up with Roman where they left off at the end of season two, because I agree. I thought that they were positioning him for some real growth, but he has kind of retreated. I could actually make a case that Logan is the one who's growing because for his entire life, he has been in control and he has been the dominant force. He's never had to confront any of the obstacles he's got right now. I mean, his first inclination is forget about the FBI and I'm just going to go to war with the president to exact some control through justice and all the other things. And then all of a sudden you say, you know what, we'll cooperate, let him in. He's learning new tricks. I mean, he gets together you know, with his son who just betrayed him to kiss this Adrian Brody's ass and try and get things going on. But that's not a trick that he never had to use before. Now, whether it's, you know, morally repugnant or not, um, that's beside the point. But he's certainly trying to do and grow in a, in a different way through all these extenuating circumstances. It seems the only redeeming quality any of these characters has is the fact that they're extremely wealthy, if you want to call that a redeeming characteristic. What does this show say about not just wealth in America today, but the audience's obsession with wealthy characters who have no substance to them for the most part? Well, I think this is like an interesting flip side. Like there's sort of like two types of rich people shows that we love to watch, right? There's the sort of like flaunted show, like your entourage or like ballers or something like that. And then there's a show, there's like the rich people behaving badly sort of and screwing up genre which is like this and they're both kind of just made to make you want to be wealthy because obviously like the flaunted way is, is obvious on its front right look at all this cool stuff that i could have i want that stuff it's aspirational whereas this one you know there's something the rich people behaving badly the kardashians this sort of show is you know the pleasure is all from a schadenfreude right of seeing these people with everything mess it all up and sort of laughing at them but i think and here it in any sort of like schadenfreude like that there's the silent idea that of course if i was in that position i would do so much better than them you know what I mean? So I think both of these types of shows are sort of meant to like hype up being wealthy, even in the wealthy people are miserable. Going on what Dave just said, how does this compare to the way people relate to the semi-fictional characters that exist on the Kardashians and the Real Housewives? I think there is a similarity a little bit in that I watch a lot of Bravo shows. I've watched a little bit of the Kardashians, but you know, there's this constant tension, especially with the Real Housewives shows where you're watching it, where you're wondering if these people are really rich and where the money really came from. Are they just faking it till they make it and maxing out on their credit cards until whatever their side business is that they're trying to push on the show becomes a real thing. There's this sort of tension as a viewer um, trying to interrogate the wealth, understand where it comes from. And, you know, they're flaunting it in this kind of grotesque way. So there's also a little bit of judgment. You're always a little put off by that. I think in succession, the whole point of the show is that these gains are pretty ill-gotten across the board, you know? So I think in that regard, they are similar. I think succession shows in a much more obvious way that kind of 
corrosiveness of this level of fame. I don't think we have, obviously on a show like Real Housewives, there's these constant graphics that tell you how much stuff costs. We don't have that in succession. We do have kind of this whole cottage industry of journalism that talks about the real estate and how much everything they consume costs. But I think there's less flaunting it, at least within the world of the show, that we don't have lingering montages of the yachts, things like that. Kendall Roy, Logan's son, played by Jeremy Strong, is an addict, a wannabe rapper, and clearly the best choice to succeed his father. Not that that's saying much. And not allowing for the fact that he's tried twice already to oust the old man and failed miserably both times. He's also the Peter Principle personified, that is, when someone rises to a point of incompetence. That's what the Peter Principle is, not what personified is. Personification is attributing human attributes to an object or animal, or in this case, a person. Kendall, well, he's not a real person. If Kendall wasn't a billionaire's kid, he would be the guy who just lost his job selling research to Wall Street traders due to his penchant for cocaine and prostitutes. Sorry, sex workers. That's We want to be very progressive here at the Crazy Money Podcast. I want to read this quote that I, I've written down as some of the dialogue, which is the writing on the show is just phenomenal, right? And there's a couple of scenes where they talk about wealth. And here's one where cousin Greg is talking about his grandfather writing him out of the will. And he says to Connor and Tom, oh, but he'll leave me $5 million anyway, so I'm golden, baby. And Connor says, you can't do anything with $5 million. Five's a nightmare. You can't retire. It's not worth it to work. Five will drive you un poco loco. And Tom says, yes the poorest rich man in America, the world's tallest dwarf. So this level of wealth, I mean, most people think about wealth as being like a million or five million bucks. This is incomprehensible, multiple billions in wealth. I did well in my career, but I have nothing in common with a billionaire. So what does this say about the difference between wealth and obscene wealth in the country? Jim. I think that there's this kind of a secret little pleasure that people of moderate means get watching rich people be miserable. When they were shooting, if you think back to the pilot, they shot a softball game. And Eileen Landers told me that during the shooting of that, there was a break and she was sitting around some picnic tables with the extras. And the extras were talking about what kind of show this is going to be. And interestingly enough, none of them mentioned the Murdochs. They talked about, oh, it's going to be like the Kennedys or the Trumps. And it's that big dynastic, obviously, family entity. So it doesn't have to be about media. But the idea that it can make us feel a little bit better about our circumstances, if you see people with all that wealth, and they're on this unbelievable, I mean, God bless HBO, Jesse wrote this scene for the end of season two on this mega yacht. And most networks would have fudged it somehow. HBO went out and got a mega yacht. What did that cost them? Do you know? I don't know. I think it's a couple hundred thousand dollars a day. Who knows? I mean, I'm not sure. But I think the point is that they're on this unbelievable yacht and they're all miserable. And none of these things, none of these trappings. I mean, when they get to the big house, it smells when they get to, you know, nobody's sitting around enjoying this stuff. And I think that's kind of like another little secret thing that they've inserted into this to make it much more palatable. I kind of disagree with like the idea that we don't have anything in common with the Roy's. I think that's one of the things that makes this show interesting is that the wealth is almost incidental to the actual problems they're having. Like if you look at like the fights they're having and what they're arguing over and what's really going on within the Roy family, it could just as easily be a family that owns you know, the tire shop I mentioned before. And instead of the ancestral home, it's a place on the Jersey shore, you know, like they would still have the same interfamily problems, whether it's, you know, a giant media conglomerate or not, it's just the trappings change. And I think that's, what's interesting about the show. And what's interesting about sort of estate planning in general is that 
a lot of the problems, the vast majority of the problems are sort of what everyone has. It scales up and down with wealth and it doesn't really necessarily matter. Families fight. And whether they're fighting over money or they're fighting over dad's chair, either his physical chair or his chairman of the boardship, like in this show, it's the same sort of emotions at the heart of all of these problems. And the wealth is just sort of fun window dressing a lot of the times. Roman Roy is Logan's funniest child, played by Kieran Culkin, who gets the best lines on the show, with perhaps the exception of Tom and or cousin Greg. Roman, a.k.a. Romulus, is sarcastic, pathetic, dumb as a rock, and Logan's most likable child. Again, not that that's saying much. He's an abused puppy that pees on the kitchen floor, but you still think is cute. If Roman wasn't rich, he'd be a former ad sales guy turned comedian podcaster with a weird eye twitch. Jim, I know you had an interesting interaction with Oliver Stone when Wall Street came out. And what's interesting to me about that movie is that it's a morality play about the dangers of greed and Wall Street excess. And yet the unintended consequence was that it inspired a whole generation of wannabe bankers and Wall Street douchebags to go into the business. Do you think there's going to be some unintended consequences to the glorification or the portrayal of wealth from succession? I'm trying to think back. Yeah, I was... uh... When Wall Street came out, Oliver Stone came up to Harvard Business School where I was a student and he showed us the picture before it came out, I guess. And most of us in the audience were laughing, especially when Charlie Sheen goes out to the balcony and says, who am I? But, uh, <laughs> OK, that's the one scene. I don't think anybody watches Succession and says, uh, hey, listen, I, I want to marry into that family and I want to be be part of that mix. It's such an intense, destructive, combative environment you know, you kind of want to watch them go through it, but I don't think anybody wants to sign up for that. Meredith, what do you think? I agree. I think that the show really walks a fine line between glamorizing the wealth and making it seem so toxic and terrible that you want no part of it. I mean, you can only make like a yacht in the Mediterranean look so terrible, right? But like, (laughs) it doesn't, it doesn't like fetishize all these trappings in a way. There's also kind of like a aesthetically, there's sort of like a soul deadening quality to it. You know, all their houses are very beige and seem very generic in a very rich person way. You know, the furniture is no doubt very expensive, but like they don't have any relationship to it. There's no like treasured mementos. There's no personality in the world that they exist in. And I think that says a lot about their lives, really. You know, it's they have decorators who decorate everything for them. They don't pick things out. Hey, everybody, what's one of the hottest markets on Earth? Crypto? Private equity? TSLA? That's Tesla, by the way. According to the Wall Street Journal, market watchers are saying that the biggest payday could come from art. That's right, art. The art market is on an absolute tear right now, and works are selling for 15 times their asking price. After all, art has outpaced the S&P 500 by almost threefold from 1995 to 2020, but it's been overlooked for decades. That's because if you can actually afford to invest in art, you're probably filthy rich to begin with. Until now, you can access this exciting asset class with Masterworks, the $1 billion fintech platform that lets you invest in art by Picasso, Warhol, and Banksy for a fraction of the cost. You don't need hundreds of millions to diversify your portfolio with art anymore. You just need a solid internet connection to get started. With over 270,000 investors already signed up, demand is exploding However, you can get priority access to their offerings by going to masterworks.io slash crazy money. That's masterworks.io slash crazy money. I'll see you there and be sure to see important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. 
Jim, in your new book, Tinderbox, HBO's Ruthless Pursuit of New Frontiers, you've got some great conversations with the producers, writers, and actors on the show, one of which is with Adam McKay, who's the executive producer and who directed the pilot. He's, for those of you in the audience who don't recognize the name, he's a very prolific director-producer who both wrote and produced Vice about Dick Cheney, The Big Short about the mortgage meltdown. He's now producing Bad Blood about Theranos. He's unapologetic about mixing politics and art. What issues do you think he's trying to explore with succession? Well, I think he's certainly trying to expose hypocrisy. I think he's also trying to take the proverbial peek behind the curtain and say, look, this is what you see when, you know, because they are masters of presenting their own brands and controlling the narrative. But behind the scenes, there's a whole set of dysfunction. Some of it gets out some of the time, but a lot of it doesn't. And I think he wanted to go deeper with what it's like to be part of those. You know, I mean, these are our families, they're ecosystems. And so I think there's a lot of drama inside that that Jesse and Adam wanted to explore. I think it was pretty cool, the idea, though, that particularly given that it was HBO, they didn't care about stars. This is not a cast full of stars. Casey Blues, who ran programming and gave it the green light. You know, when Adam said, look, we want to do this, they were talking about it. They didn't care about stars. And I think that as a result, you get even a stronger feeling. I mean, if it was, you know, Brad Pitt playing somebody or whatever, you know, there's that kind of like a little bit of a detachment because it's clearly a movie star. I mean, we really, we see these people and we really think they're them. There's a level of of transparency, you think, because they're not so famous. Did any of those actors worry about being blackballed by Fox Studios, which the Murdochs owned at the time? No. No, they were dying for it. They were dying for it. (laughs) Connor Roy, played by Alan Rock, is Logan's son from his first marriage. Connor pretends to be above the family business, but he certainly isn't above the money it brings him, for which he does absolutely no work. He is a chronic dabbler in delusional political dreams and uses his family cash to fund the artistic fantasies of his prostitute girlfriend. Sorry, sex worker girlfriend. If Connor wasn't part of the Roy dynasty, he'd be a 60-year-old maitre d' who often gets mistaken for Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Let's talk about money and happiness. Clearly, they're not trying to make the argument that money makes people happy. So Dave and Meredith, if you had to choose to be one of the Roy children, which one would you choose and why? That is trade lives completely all together, all in. You can't just have the money and the cool stuff. You've got to be one of those characters. I mean, I would choose none, I guess, but you know, if I could, but it, going to my head, I have to choose one. I guess I would choose Siobhan. She's gainfully employed. <laughs> she's in a marriage, albeit a uh, a dysfunctional one. You know, she seems like she at least has one foot in the real world, sort of, as opposed to everyone else who sort of is off in the cloud somewhere or in their own crazy universe. So I guess it would be Siobhan reluctantly. I think I would say the same thing because... She does have some really great clothes. And also <laughs> she does. She does. Let's be real. And she, especially she, she has a good haircut in season two. Um, I would also say she has Tom who like is such a dope and such a hilarious weaselly character, but I think he does genuinely love her. And you know, he's not a bad looking guy. I don't know. I think we're, I think we're dealing with scraps here. I think it's hard to say, but I think I would go with Shiv also. I thought for a second Connor, but his presidential run, I want no part of that. So I'm also um, not quite sure if Connor's a Nazi or not. And that just settles me. <laughs> yeah. But I do like his ranch, wherever that is. New Mexico, Taos, where is it? I can't remember. But anyway, that didn't seem so bad. It has definite Wagnerian vibes to it, Dave. You're absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
for sure. He's got some creepy stuff going on. All right, Meredith, you just brought up Tom and I noticed something. So I've binge watched the first four episodes right when they came out. And then for the past three weeks, I've been binge watching however many, whatever that is, 18 episode balance or whatever. And I've been making copious notes along the way. And in one of the early episodes, Tom, when he's new to the family, he's meeting Logan for one of the early times, and he brings him a Patek Philippe watch as a gesture of respect for the old man. And Logan takes the watch and like just gives it to somebody else right away. He couldn't care less about this watch. And I wrote down, what do you give a billionaire? But not just a billionaire, a multi-deca billionaire who's about power every much as he is about the money. And later, just a few episodes ago, I think early in season three, Tom does something to demonstrate complete faith and submission to the family. And Logan looks at him and he doesn't ask for anything in return. And Logan looks at him with respect in his eyes for the very first time. And so the answer Mm -hmm. to the question, what do you give a billionaire is undying respect with no expectation for compensation. Tom actually (laughs) shows some character at that point. Do you think he's in this character arc He's putting himself in line for bigger things at the company. I think so. And it does seem like the writers are, you know, something I know about the writers on this show from talking to some of them and talking to the actors about them is that they really try to work with the performers and when they're doing something interesting to write to it. And they're clearly this season seem to be writing to Tom, who's played by Matthew McFadden, who's a really great actor. And they want to give him a little more depth and stuff to do. So I think that, I do think that Tom could be setting himself up for something bigger, whether that's in Waystar Royco or outside of it. I don't know, but it seems like we're kind of working our way towards that. And it's nice to see that because he's this character who's been sort of emasculated with hilarious results for two seasons now. But I think he does show these very brief glimpses of humanity and compassion, particularly with Cousin Greg. I think that storyline is fantastic. (laughs) And I think for a lot of people who watch the show, that's really what got them hooked on it because it's this world of nasty characters, right? And for me, at least, it took me a little while to warm to the tone of the show. And for some reason, that dynamic really got me. I just loved them together. And I think it's because they're sort of the outsiders in this world and they're semi-remotely decent people (laughs) at times. It's a really interesting like dichotomy, right? Because I agree with you that that's sort of, if there was an emotional part of the show that's a relationship, it probably is like Tom and Greg's weird interactions. But in the same vein, like, would you be totally shocked if in two episodes Tom just killed Greg because of something he did? <laughs> no. Like, maybe it's just it's an HBO show and I'm just, you know, hey, it's Game of Thrones and Sopranos. Maybe it's just someone getting whacked every two episodes. But, like, I wouldn't be totally shocked if Tom just exploded and killed Greg at some point. In the same vein, I wouldn't be totally shocked if they went into business together as partners. They've done a really nice job of making that, like, a very strange sort of nebulous relationship. It's like, it's clear that they have a relationship, but, like, the nature of it is really kind of weird. Well, yeah. if you want to make a Tomlet, you have to break some Gregs. <laughs> How long have you had that one in the... <laughs> no, that was in the show. I, I stole that completely. Cousin Greg, played by Nicholas Braun, is the six foot six relative who gets himself fired from his job at a Roy family theme park. Then, at the suggestion of his mum, ingratiates himself to the Roy family. Although he's a naive idiot, he somehow finds himself with a great job, a great apartment, and access to the family inner sanctum. He is an absolutely improbable character on the show and has few redeeming qualities except the ability to say what most of us would say if we were dropped into the middle of a psychotic family dynasty. If Cousin Greg wasn't a relative, if he weren't a relative, I don't know, wasn't, weren't, he'd be wearing an extra long hoodie emblazoned by the logo of the fourth tech startup he's worked at in three years. 
David, you write about wealthy families, you write about estates and how to pass money down. If you were an advisor to the Roy family and you wanted to instill civility, what guidance would you give them for how to structure estates and manage the family assets? Well, I mean, it's way too late for that at the point in the show we're at. The interesting thing about the show and the advice I would have given to them at the beginning was stick to the plan. Because if you remember the very first episode, everyone was ready for Kendall and generally at least outwardly okay with Kendall being named the successor. There was a trust in, in place. Everyone was going to get their money. Kendall was going to get the job he wanted. Everyone was getting what they wanted and they were all fine with it. That was the plan. There is an estate plan here. And then all things go haywire when all of a sudden Brian Cox decides, oh no, I'm not doing this anymore. And then you see the second the crack in the plan shows up, this is like a, one of my articles, I, I compare this to sort of the Joker, right? In Dark Knight Returns where it's, oh, well, you know, as long as things are going to plan, the plan could be terrible, but everyone will just go with it. But the second that you know, things aren't going to plan, everyone loses their minds. And that kind of is what happened here, right? Everyone was fine with Kendall being the one until Brian Cox showed a crack in the plan and said, oh, well, and maybe he's not. And then two people who never cared about that job, really, like Roman, why does he? No, he doesn't care. And all of a sudden, they're jumping all over it. So I think in cases like this, if there is a plan, unless there's a, like a very good reason and you can communicate very well, which is also the mistake Roman makes is that he changes the plan without communicating at all why he's doing it. Unless you communicate very well why you're doing it and why there's a very good reason, it's going to cause much more trouble than it's worth. Sticking with the plan a lot of the times is what keeps these things in line. Speaking of changes to plans, subsequent wives and subsequent affairs have complicated the issue with the Roy Trust. Do you see this? Do multi-generational businesses often have to deal with new partners in the scenario and then children have to negotiate with stepmoms and dads? Absolutely. I mean, this is a tale as old as time, and, and it goes back farther than most of us care to admit with our sort of dated ideas of like the nuclear family and 1.5, husband and wife and 1.5 children. You know, those ideas haven't really been true for a very long time. But increasingly, as we see today, the idea of what we call a blended family, be it through divorce, through adoption, through having, you know, LGBTQ kids who maybe make relationships that are, that are, maybe they have marriage, maybe they create a lasting relationship that's outside of a marriage, but that is no less sort of justifiable in a marriage. You have all these other things that can come together and create this like very complicated web of the family. And a lot of times what makes the states complicated is that you have all these sort of disparate parts that have sort of been tacked in like, oh, here's your third wife. And my son has two wives. And his daughter is gay and has a girlfriend who's not married. So how do we protect her? You know, because we do love her and want her to get something, but her legal rights are sort of limited because they didn't get married. And so you end up with these weird situations where all of these people, this crazy web is all sort of connected by one person. Right. And so if that one person is just plucked out, say that, you know, God forbid they die, then you have this whole crazy web of people who have no frame of reference for really being civil with each other anymore. Like the one thing that united them is now gone and they all are dealing with the trauma and then having to sort of completely reevaluate all their relationships with all these people. So what happened in succession, that's why I like it, is like this is a common problem. Like this sort of stuff and these sorts of families are just what families are like now. Like they have this is for everyone. You don't have to be hyper wealthy for to have the exact problems the Roy's are having. I mean, you just wouldn't be having them on a private jet. Right. But TV likes to make things as sexy as possible when it comes to representing family strife. Meredith, where would you say that succession ranks in the pantheon of TV shows about rich families, including, oh, Dallas and Dynasty and Downton Abbey come to mind? I'm not sure why there's so much D-related alliteration here, but where do you think it fits? Is this just the most recent version of classic stories that TV has been telling for decades? 
I think Succession is different from those shows and, you know, obviously has a lot of similarities with those shows as well. I think what makes Succession different is that it's very of the moment. You know, it's obviously trying to examine a family that has very real similarities to powerful families. We've already talked about the Murdochs, the Kennedys, the Trumps. It's very much trying to understand where we are now culturally and politically through the lens of this family and their particular dysfunction and their psychological problems. We've seen a lot of rich anti-heroes on TV. I think what this does differently is show just really how corrosive this lifestyle can be, not just on one person or one family, but on a whole generation of people and, you know, on a whole country. (laughs) I mean, I think that there are episodes of succession, you know, it doesn't play the kind of, it doesn't drive home the politics too heavily. Um, There is an episode coming up this season where it does really get into that. I don't want to spoil it for anyone. Oh, you've already seen it. I've seen the first seven and there is an episode. I don't know when this podcast episode is going to drop, but there's an episode that really shows the power that these people have, these fictional people have, and their, you know, real life parallels have. And I think that we can't forget that's really what sets it apart. I think if you look back at sort of the history of rich people on television, which is a long history, you know, TV has always liked rich people. Um, If you look at sort of Dynasty, Dallas, those were shows about rich people that were fun to watch. They were guilty pleasure shows and we lived through them doing terrible things. The other D that you're mentioning, Downton Abbey, that was really a rose-tinted look at the past, right? I loved that show, but I think it glossed over a lot of really terrible things about the British aristocracy, the problems there of, you know, a life of service. And it turned it into sort of a glamorous, amazing thing. And we looked, we all wanted to sit down and have this amazing dinner at Downton Abbey with Lord Grantham. I think that succession doesn't do that with those things. And I think it really asks difficult questions. Marsha Roy, played by Hayam Abbas. Hayam Abbas? Hayam Abbas is Logan's wife. That's harder to pronounce than Quinnipiac. Quinnipiac. She's a scheming wife. Is she scheming? She's kind of scheming. She's not scheming, but she won't be schemed against. If she wasn't married to Logan, she'd be married to another billionaire because she's smart, cosmopolitan, and eh, pretty hot for a 60-something-year-old lady. Sorry, woman. We want to be progressive here. Dave, you're not a TV critic by trade, but I think you've got some opinions on this matter. Which is your favorite family dynasty show of all time? Well, I'm partial to the Downton Abbey. I enjoy the uh, Laura Linney jumping at the beginning. So that's a little guilty pleasure of mine and my wife's. But I think the interesting thing comparing those shows to Succession is that those shows at least, and and most sort of anti-hero shows like Meredith mentioned, they either purposely give you someone to root for, or they sort of give you a variety of people who you can choose to root for. With Succession, like there was very pointedly nobody to root for (laughs) in this show. Everyone is awful. There's, you know, yeah. even in other shows where it's like, oh, it's Tony Soprano is a murderer, but you love him. Right. And this, it's, yeah. you know, there's no, they just very pointedly have given you no center and nobody to actually root for. So you're sort of, it's a different feeling, I think, than a lot of other shows about wealthy people where it's just, there's no, nothing to hang on to. You're just kind of going with it. That's a really interesting point. When I was thinking who should have this job, I keep coming back to none of them. Like, you know, hire a, a search firm and find somebody with capabilities from outside the family to do it. Oh well, yeah. I mean, from the, the pure like advisory point of view, it should be Holly Hunter's character, right? She's clearly the best candidate and they sort right. of just sabotage that, I guess. Spoiler alert for people. Right. Yeah. But, and uh, Logan <laughs> called, what did Logan describe her as? Fucking fungible, replaceable, replaceable. And hilariously so. I mean, sort of in the modern era, that's a job of a lot of CEOs, right? Where they're sort of their job is to do nothing and then kind of take the fall when bad stuff comes out. I mean, that's kind of what Roger Goodell, right? The president does in the NFL, just there for people to get mad at and take their golden parachute. And then the next guy comes in. 
Meredith, where does this plot line go? Kendall's already betrayed Logan twice or so we believe. How many seasons can you make out of this one question of who gets the fleece that is being presumably going to be there, whether Logan is alive or not? It's a really good question. And I think it's one that if you look at the rhythms of the show over the past two seasons, there's usually some kind of, you know, explosive thing towards the end of the season. So I do think we're kind of in this holding pattern right now, waiting for whatever that explosive thing is. I think a good rule of thumb is that when there's a dead waiter in season one, that dead waiter's body is going to turn up at some point and people are going to start asking questions. I think that that is something that Logan has in his back pocket. And I think that Chekhov's dead waiter there. Exactly. Check on Zed Waiter. That has to obviously be resolved. I do think there has to be some disruption of the status quo, because so far we've seen, as you said, Kendall, go to war with his dad twice, and we've seen Logan more or less win twice. To keep the story going, I think we have to have a more dramatic disruption of the status quo. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means that Logan has another stroke. I don't know. We'll see. But I think there has to be some kind of dramatic turnover at the end of this season to kind of keep it going. Dave, what do you hope to see in the rest of season three? I mean, obviously as an estate planner, I just kind of hope Logan dies because I feel like they've exhausted a lot of their avenues with what living daddy issues people have. And I think exploring sort of, okay, now daddy's dead issues. It's a whole fertile new ground for a show like this. Though, I, although I mean, obviously people love Brian Cox and I'm an estate planning nerd, so you can't totally trust my opinion. <laughs> and then there's all the new changes to estate law based on the Biden administration. Oh, don't don't get me started. There you go. Meredith Blake of the Los Angeles Times, thank you so much for joining. Where can our listeners find out more about you? You can find me on Twitter at Meredith Blake. M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H-B-L-A-K-E, correct? That's right. All the right. right way of spelling it. The proper way. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. Dave Lenick, what's going on next at the Celebrity Estates podcast? Yeah, we've got a few exciting episodes coming up. I think the next few celebrities we're covering, we're Sonny and Cher, with DMX and his recent crazy... Uh, marriage situation and uh, Mackenzie Scott, who is alive, but is very interesting nonetheless. Thank you all for your time. I look forward to learning what's next for the Roy family with you all. Thanks for having us, Paul. Jim, is there a framework for how HBO chooses to greenlight big ensemble shows like this? Is there a checklist, money, sex, family dysfunction, that sort of thing? I don't think so. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why you see such distinctive shows throughout its history. You know, The Sopranos and Curb Your Enthusiasm, The Wire, Six Feet Under, I mean, we can go on and on and on, right? Obviously, Game of Thrones. I think that one of the things that happened was Casey Blois, who was running the programming, wanted to do a family show. This Is Us had recently come out. They're not going to do a show like This Is Us, but they're going to do something that's wildly inventive and turn like the family drama on its head. And so that's what they wound up doing. It was great because they said it's all about the material. And so when Adam brought in Jesse's script, I mean, it's like they knew that they could go with that and they support the hell out of it without stars. Yeah. There's more stars on the production side than there are in front of the camera. Right. Well, that's the whole point, right? You want to trust somebody. You want to trust somebody who's going to be able to really be the impresario and the the leader of a show like this. And that's what they have with Jesse and with Adam. So you've got a really interesting background in politics, print news, and broadcast television. Does the depiction of the media business in succession ring true to you? Well, I mean, look, the media business is sometimes, you know, you sit around and you think, boy, five years ago, things really changed. We didn't realize it at the time. Well, we realize it now. Things are changing every single day. Rules are being thrown out the window all the time. The financial equation is changing. Obviously, there's so much consolidation. 
and the news business is changing. So as a result, I think that there's not a lot of certainty and there's not a lot of agreement about the state of media today. And I think it makes it for makes for one of the most interesting dynamic times in the last 25 years of media. You've got a new book coming out, Tinderbox, HBO's Ruthless Pursuit of New Frontiers. What should our audience look for in this new release? Well, I mean, look, if you've ever spent any time on HBO or thought about HBO or uh, curious about HBO, what I try and do, as I did with SNL, ESPN, and CA, is pull back the proverbial curtain and make sure that you understand why certain decisions were made and how they happened. You get to know the people who are making those decisions. And I spent a lot of time with you know, like I talked with Julia Louis-Dreyfus and the guys who ran the Game of Thrones and Amelia Clark and people who were in front of the camera and behind the camera to talk about how they put these shows together and what were some of the challenges, what were some of the near misses, the near death experiences for their shows. And as a result, I hope you get a deeper understanding of what goes on at a place like that. Where does Succession fit in the, the long and storied list of HBO properties? I think that's a great question. And I think it's further evidence that HBO is still able to produce and by produce support great dramas. This is, you know, it won best drama, but it's arguably one of the best shows on television without a doubt. And I think that, you know, they need to show that they can still do that, particularly given the fact that they're being outspent by Netflix a zillion to one. And so the fact that they can, have a show like Succession, I think is a big deal for them. It's a big deal. Jim, thank you for your time. The name on the book is James Andrew Miller. It's called Tinderbox, HBO's Ruthless Pursuit of New Frontiers. Where can our audience find out more about you and your work? Uh, well, the book goes on sale November 23rd and on Twitter at, at Jim Miller, though I probably don't tweet enough. <laughs> That's what we all need to do is spend more time tweeting. Yeah, right. Thanks so much for your time and best of luck with the uh, book release. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Meredith Blake, Dave Linick, and Jim Miller for joining us today. I'm grateful for all of your time. My takeaways are this. Go watch Succession. It's a fantastic show. It's up there with the top shows in HBO history. Maybe not the best, but it's a contender for sure. Hey, folks, please take a second to rate and review this podcast. Your feedback tells potential listeners they can invest their time wisely and safely listening to Crazy Money. You can see the link in the show notes or go to ratethispodcast.com slash crazy money. Ratethispodcast.com slash crazy money. We will be back next week with an interview with my friend Ali Partovi, who is a very interesting character. He is a uh, technology executive, founder, angel investor, who's got some amazing stories from his time over the past 30 years in Silicon Valley, including the horrible, horrible things that Steve Jobs said to him when he misspoke in a meeting that would have changed his life. That's Ali Partovi coming out next week, December 7th. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound uh, smart.